Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance, while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favour with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you, and continue to find favour with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people, unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Then the Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets, like the first ones, and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. 
And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed down to the ground at once and worshipped. O Lord, if I have found favour in your eyes, he said, then let the Lord go with us. Forgive this, although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles. Do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Okay, let's pray and then uh, work through this Exodus passage. We won't stay in Exodus, we'll get through other parts of the Bible and to the New Testament. So I'll take it to Jesus, don't worry. We're not going to be Jews and remain in the first half of the book. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the time we have together now, just to spend time thinking about your word. And we pray that um, we'd make some sense of the teaching in the past and how it finds its fulfilment in Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, the title of the talk is Being Near to God. So that's uh, where we're going. Now, I wonder if you've ever felt that you needed to do something special in order to be closer to God. As a zealous teenager, I spent some time with some, some Texas summer missionaries here in Australia. And uh, at that time, they encouraged me to have a quiet time with God, to develop that little habit of Bible reading, prayer, and, and even taking a bit of a, a journal, writing down how I'm going in life and thinking about areas to, to develop as a Christian. It was a good habit to establish, and I made it a part of my life for quite a long time. Uh, but as I started out doing those quiet times, I wondered whether I needed to make that time even a bit more special, to have perhaps even a, a greater experience of being near to God. And so around that time, I started to take a, a glass uh, that was dedicated to holding a candle and it was a nice sweet smelling candle and I'd light up my candle, put it next to my bed on the bedside table and I'd have this nice glow from the candle and the, the red glass jar. It was a bit of a ritual and I was wondering if it, if it would give me a greater sense Two, two, testing. <clears throat> I wonder if he was thinking I'm taking the congregation the wrong way with this candle story. Well, I must say, uh, the, the candle time uh, with God was interesting on one day. I can remember, I'll sound like some old digger out of The Simpsons now, it was a Thursday. <laughs> it was December the 28th, 1989. I can remember it pretty clearly. Because as I sat there doing my devotion, 
with my candle on and little uh, Selwyn Hughes Bible study reading guide. I don't recommend him, by the way. Uh, <laughs> as I read this stuff, I felt something happen, and it was my bed. It was shaking a little at first, and I wondered, has my candlelit quiet time brought me a little nearer to God? Is God teaching me something about being closer to, to him at this time? Well, the short answer is no. He was teaching me that, that that's what an earthquake feels like. <laughs> because that was the, um, the time that there was a Newcastle earthquake uh, that measured 5.6 on the Richter scale and um, unfortunately killed a number of people and caused a lot of damage too, a large damage bill. So later on I thought, as my theology developed and improved, maybe God was teaching me, Peter, you're going the wrong way. You need to change back. But what about you? Have you ever felt that there's something that you could do to maybe be a little bit nearer to God? Something special, perhaps. You might not have had your little glass, sweet-smelling candle, but is there something else that you've done to maybe try to be a bit nearer to God? Well, National Israel had something of a journey in their closeness to God as well. In many ways, we could describe their experience, though, as getting more distant from God, particularly uh, by the time they crucify their Messiah and say to Pilate, we've got no king but Caesar. And so we could broadly see their closeness to God and their relationship as a story of national failure. Although God had raised up Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and created a, a great nation out of that family line in Egypt... Even when they were in Egypt, they grumbled against God during the time that they were being moved out uh, around the plagues. They grumbled when they got delivered out just before they crossed the Red Sea and asked, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to be slaughtered in the desert? And they grumbled on their way to Mount Sinai. They grumbled at water, manna and quail. So we see that national Israel wasn't always a godly group of people. And last week, when I was at PY camp, I think Scott spoke on a, a bit of a zenith, a high point in their failure, if we could talk about high points. Uh, the golden calf incident uh, was a moment where they'd just come to agree that they would be God's people uh, and took on the covenant, which described how they were to live. And even at that time, uh, they end up falling short. And I couldn't help but think about some parallels between Adam in the Garden of Eden uh, and sinning. Adam's questioned by God and he blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. When Moses comes down the hill, he says to Aaron, what's going on? And Aaron blames the people. And then he starts to blame the gold. He says, we threw it in the fire and out comes this calf. Who would have thought? Uh, and so it seems to be Almost similarities between this, this moment of the golden calf. It's a high point of their failure. But as a result of that failure, things change between national Israel and God. Did you know that? It's true. Uh, in chapter 19 and 20 of Exodus, what we see is the whole nation meets with God. But after this golden calf incident, God puts some distance between himself and the people. And what we're going to see is that there's, there's only uh, a way for them to know God and meet with God through a mediator. 
We see that in chapter 19, first of all. Israel's invited to be God's treasured possession, priestly royalty, a holy nation. The people agree to do that. And we're told that they were in the presence of the Lord when he was on the mountain in thunder and lightning and a thick cloud. Moses leads the people out of the camp to meet God and they stand collectively at the foot of the mountain. And that's where they meet God as a nation. And this idea that the people all together, uh, a kingdom of priests they're called to be, uh, is reinforced in Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 4 where Moses says, The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. In 5.22 he says, These are the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly. There on the mountain, from out of the fire, the cloud and the deep darkness. Now we know that Moses and others had an important role in establishing the covenant with God and his people as well. But nonetheless, what's being emphasised here is that the people also at the foot of the mountain meet together with God as a nation. And yet after the golden calf incident, what we started to see in the passage that Alice read for us, there she is, Alice did a good job of reading, uh, that God is angry with the people and that there's a distancing by God from the nation. He threatens them in the first instance not to be with them on the way, not to lead them to the promised land because he might destroy them, but he's happy to meet with Moses. Uh, we start to see some of that connection happening with that tent of meeting. Uh, the tent of meeting is not the tabernacle. It's a place outside the camp, away from the people, where God meets with Moses. We see that in chapter 33, verse 11. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. And Moses increasingly gains prominence as the mediator between the people and God. Moses does intercede for them and asks that God's presence will go with them. And in verse 17, God agrees and says, because I'm pleased with you and I, I know you by name, uh, my presence will go with you and the people. So God does, in spite of their sin, follow through. And Moses seems to feel the weight of his responsibility in this mediatorial type role. And he asks for what theologians call for a theophany, uh, an encounter with God. He wants to see God's glory, but he's not given that because he's told if he sees God's face, he'll die. It's all a little bit mysterious because in Exodus we see that in chapter 19, there's a sapphire underneath the feet of God. Here we're seeing that he's going to cover Moses with his hand and that later when God passes, Moses will see God's back and then he's not allowed to see God's face. God perhaps is saying... Uh, he's cast in kingly terms, that's how we're to think of God, but it's still a bit mysterious what this um, glory of God looks like. But in sum, Israel has been unfaithful to God. Formerly God met with them as a nation, but now he's only going to meet with the people through a mediator, and that's Moses in the first place, but later it becomes prophets, priests and kings throughout the his history of Israel. And so God has now distanced himself somewhat from the nation. 
But what stands out, and we're in point three of the outline, is that we see something of still God's continuous uh, good and gracious nature towards Moses and the people. We see that God continues the, the program, if I could put it that way. Moses is invited to take two new tablets of stone. The, the fact that the last ones have been smashed isn't just because he was cranky and, you know, he didn't, there was no cat to kick kind of thing uh, that he cracked the tablets. That's a way of saying that, that covenant's dissolved. Um, it's been nullified. Uh, but so there's two new tablets uh, reflecting the new covenant that God's making with Moses. We see that in verse 10 of chapter 33. God says, I'm making a covenant with you. Uh, before you all people, I will do wonders never seen before, done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. And so God's making this covenant with Moses supremely and then derivatively with Israel. The fact that God's prepared to commit to his relationship with Moses and the people says much about the character of God. And then we see that God gives himself a, a bit of a character reference there where he talks about who he is, the Lord, the Lord, uh, gracious and compassionate. In, in particular, in verse 6, uh, we read the words abounding in love and faithfulness. This is a, a special Hebrew word called hesed, and it's talking about uh, God is great in love and faithfulness or he abounds in it. It's talking about his great loyalty and commitment uh, even when it's not deserved. This is what one commentator said about that word, the, the hesed love. He says, The Lord will still accompany Israel on the march. But since Israel has been undeserving, the covenant renewal is a wonderful demonstration of God's loyal love, a loyalty that goes far beyond what can be expected or deserved within a relationship. So God's been faithful to Israel in the past when they've been rescued out of Egypt and on the way, but with the golden calf incident, we still see something of God's uh, great loyal love to Israel, even when they don't deserve it. Now, at this point in the, the sermon, it's worth us thinking about our lives. It's good to look at the unfolding plan of God in the Bible, uh, but it's good to think about perhaps who we identify with in the story. Do we identify with national Israel? Those were rebellious people who uh, worshipped a golden calf and got up to indulge in revelry. Are we identifying with those, the grumblers? Or do we have more in common with maybe the remnant of Israel, those who, although they were sinful as well, still acknowledge their sin, confess it, uh, and turn to the Lord? Well, either way, um, we are those who still depend on God's great loyal love, aren't we? Uh, in the past, they depended upon God to save them uh, in that way at those times, but we're in the second half of salvation history and we're reminded of his great love to us in Jesus. This is what we see 
in Titus chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. We read, But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. And so we still see that even though we fail to live up to our calling as the people of God, the people of our Lord Jesus, uh, we still experience the kindness and love of God. And it's a, it's a good thing for us to remember when we're weighed down uh, by our shortcomings. Uh, even today, as you drive off and you wonder what that sermon was about, hopefully you'll take away a reminder about the steadfast uh, goodness and love of God for us that's in Christ. This is a good moment to hold on to. It's a good, good thing to let us sink in. Well, since chapter 34, verse 10, uh, God has renewed this covenant with the people through Moses and he's provided a mediator between him and the people. And we start to see that played out a little bit more sharply at the end of the chapter. This is a part that Alice didn't read to us because she wasn't asked to. Uh, So if you've got your Bibles there, let's turn to Exodus chapter 34. I'm going to read to you verse 29 to 35. And this is another incident where Moses comes down the mountain. I'm going to put my glasses on. Okay, Exodus 34 verse 29 to 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near to him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, He removed the veil until he came out. And when he he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. Moses comes down from the mountain once again. Last time he came down, it was the sound of um, music and singing and people uh, engaging in uh, revelry, pagan revelry. Uh, This time he comes down, people are frightened because his face is radiant. What are we to make of this radiant face of Moses? Well, it seems that Moses has been selected to be the mediator between God and the people. The radiant face is probably to impress on the people that God's authority and presence rests with Moses. The veil is uh, down unless he's communicating with God, so then the veil goes up and Moses speaks with God. And then when Moses speaks to the people, the veil goes up, kind of giving the sign that this is a message from God to the people, and then the veil comes down. Just as people couldn't enter the most holy place because of a curtain or a veil that hid God's glory, 
God's glory, rather. Some have argued that now the people can't behold the glory of God reflected in Moses because of this veil. It's, a, it's an interesting little picture here, but I think the take-home message is that uh, God mediates to his people through Moses and uh, their access to God is no longer as a nation, but uh, through, through Moses. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this pattern continues throughout the whole Old Testament period. Uh, God doesn't meet collectively with them as a nation again, as he did in 19 and 20. Uh, he meets through prophets, priests and kings and other people are the ones who mediate God's presence to the people. That is, of course, until we get to Jesus. And so in John chapter 1, verse 14, we read, The word became flesh and made his dwelling, or his tabernacle, he tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And it seems that uh, the law is given through Moses, but now God's grace is coming to the people collectively once again. There is an irony, though, because Jesus is also described as a mediator as well. Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, Jesus is the only mediator between God and people. Jesus is both God and also man. And he's got a, a unique place uh, to reconcile us to God. Jesus could speak to human beings as God and he could also take the place of people before God as a substitute and representative. He stands between us as the one who brings us together with God in a reconciled relationship. And as the only mediator, he is the only way we can be reconciled to God. Most of us know the verse from John's Gospel, John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus uh, not only reveals God to the people once more, uh, he's also the mediator as the one who brings us forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. And in fact, so complete is his work as our substitute and as our mediator uh, that our standing with God is established and we are in a different position to the Israelites. We, we, they found themselves at some distance from God, but we actually have a close relationship with God. In fact, Paul picks up on this uh, veil and radiant face theme that we've been reading about in Exodus. He picks that up in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says that uh, whenever the Old Testament is read to the Jews, a veil remains, but whenever any of them turn to Christ, it's taken away and they've got access to God. And he speaks about us. He says, we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory. He's saying we're, we're almost like more like Moses in that we've got this uh, connection to God, this closeness to God. We with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory and we are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit, which is his way of saying we've got a relationship with God that comes through Jesus the mediator 
And God is changing us through the Spirit to be more like the people he wants us to be. Paul's point is that we have access to God and we are close to God. And this closeness to God is also emphasised in other parts of the Bible too. For example, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, I'll read this last passage. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open to us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. The message is that although Israel experienced some distance from God, uh, we're in a different boat. Uh, on account of the work of Christ, our mediator, we can confidently come to God. We are those who are able to draw near to God. And earlier, although I spoke about my sentimental quiet times that included a sweet-smelling candle wax, uh, that was an incorrect way to think about getting nearer to God. That was, that was a blunder on my part. Because the take-home message from God's Word today is that through the work of Christ, we're already close to God. We're already those who can draw near to Him. Uh, there's no other uh, way. Jesus is the only mediator. And so we shouldn't, we've got to forget uh, nice smelling candles or anything else as a means to draw nearer to God. So let's be those who stand firm, walking with the Lord and drawing near to God because of Jesus and through Jesus. Let us pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your great steadfast love and kindness in the past to continue to provide a way for us to enjoy life with you as your people. We thank you that you made yourself known uh, through the prophets, uh, through people at different times in different ways in the past. But we give you thanks that you've made yourself known uh, clearly in the person of your son, Jesus, our Lord. We do thank you that um, as we come to him, we can be reconciled to you. We thank you that we can uh, experience the forgiveness of sins and enjoy adoption into your family. And Lord, we do thank you for the complete work of Jesus and the sufficient work of it that, that um, brings us to be those who can draw near to you and that we are close to you. And Lord, we do thank you for your great goodness to us that even though we stumble and fall in many ways and we're each aware of our own shortcomings, you're kind and you're willing to forgive. So we do thank you for that reassurance of your grace towards us that's complete through the work of Christ. We thank you for this encouragement today that we can think about how the Old Testament story ends with the work of Jesus the mediator. And we pray it in his name. Amen.